Well, we're doing a teaching all this year. Anybody know what it's called on Wednesday night? Believe. Say it like you believe it. Believe. And it's important. I'm not going to go back and review. There's no way to do that. But we're making these readily available. I was talking with one of our pastors tonight, too, before service. We we want to catalog these really good because what we're going to do this year is going to serve as a constant reference so that you can go back as we build line upon line to go back and what does the Bible say about that? What do we believe about that? Because one of the problems that virtually any setting or group has is people are adherents to it, but they don't know what it's really about. How many of you are some golfers that are not really? <laughs> and, there's, and there's people that claim to be a communist or this or that, and they don't even know really what they espouse. And unfortunately, though, this is, this is my concern, is there are Christians and they don't really know what they believe. You know, they signed up, they felt something. I believe their commitment could be very genuine and eternal. But we've got to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to articulate what we believe. And so we're going to do some good work on this on Wednesday nights all year long. And um, I want you to just make sure you're here and get folks here for this because it's going to be helpful. We, uh, a couple weeks ago, talked about... um, The doctrine of revelation that God reveals himself. He does that through creation. He does that through conscience. There's, there's moral law within every, every person. You can sear that conscience and so forth. Um, you can push away and try to try to ignore that, but, but it does exist in all cultures. Um, essentially the same laws exist and how did that happen? It all springs out of, I think the moral law that God has put within us. You look at creation, you see God revealing himself. And and that's called general revelation. Then we have special revelation where God reveals to us through his word, um, his truths about his character, his plans, his intents, uh, how to live life and so forth. And God reveals more and more himself in that way. And then we looked last week that the number one way that God reveals himself is through his word. Well, we're going to look here for a few weeks at his word. Last week, we saw that all scripture is given by inspiration. So we looked at the doctrine of inspiration. And and I'm not trying to be wordy here, but you're going to be better off to learn a few phrases as we go along. We believe in verbal inspiration and we believe in plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning we believe that every word, everybody say every word. Every word of God's word is inspired. It's God breathed. It came from God. It came out of God with some passion, inspiration. And not only did it come out of him, it continues to, and we don't understand this entirely. It continues to be spoken is still alive. God's word is alive. So we believe in verbal inspiration. Every word, say it again, every word. And then we believe in what is called plenary uh, inspiration, which means the entire book. It's an entire book. And we'll talk in a few weeks about the canon of Scripture. How did we get this? How did this come to us? And it is remarkable. And uh, we'll see the hand of God in that as well. Well, today I want to, tonight rather, I want to move on and talk about the, the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy. And um, this is, let me, let me go ahead and get into some Scripture and then we'll, We'll uh, fill this out tonight. Psalm 12, verse 6. Are you all with me tonight? Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. The New International Version says they are flawless. I like that. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, 
purified seven times. That's significant. Then in Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6, every word of God, every word of God is pure. Again, that same word in the NIV brings it out. It's flawless. I want you to see that. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So we're going to look at tonight. Let me just get this up in front of you here. First of all, inspiration from last week. But we've got to tie these together. And then tonight, inerrancy. And let's go ahead and define inerrancy a little bit. It means that all words in Scripture are completely true. True. Are you all here? Uh, And without error. And that's where the root of that word would come from, errancy. Um, It's without error. The Scripture always tells the truth. Everything it talks about, it talks about in complete truthfulness. It is free from error. It's exempt from mistakes. It's in perfect accord with truth. And I pray that tonight when you leave here, you'll have a little more confidence and joy about the fact that you have a mistake-free Bible. We believe that it's inspired, every word of it and the whole thing. And we believe in its inerrancy. It's, It's not subject to mistake or error. Now let's explore this a little bit tonight because there's even in, even in some, quote, Christian liberal uh, seminaries, there's debate on if, if it has error or mistakes or it's just a man book or whatever. I don't even know why they're having a seminary. I just got to be honest. And I won't even give the names of some of the seminaries, but I mean, you would, you would know the names, just high fluting, but they have lost their way, my opinion. Scripture is the standard of truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Read those last four words with me. Your word is truth. Now, we believe in verbal and plenary inspiration and verbal and plenary inerrancy of the scripture. And if you don't, then we fall into a troubled kind of area. So I do want to make a good case for this tonight. To disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Because God and His Word are one. And if you have real integrity in your life, that's you as well. So if my mom, growing up, left me a note and told me, don't do this and do this. And if I disobeyed her note, I disobeyed her. <laughs> it's too late. Um, and God and his word are one. So if we suggest errancy, if we suggest that God's word is flawed, it has errors, it has mistakes, then we impugn We attack God's integrity and God's character. If somebody affronted you and you said something and they they said that your words were untrue, 
They're not just assaulting your words. They're impugning your character and your integrity. So this is a big deal. Everybody say big deal. Now, any theology that does not believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture, that theology then is going to be very hollow. It's, it's going to be unreliable. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I just think it would end up being useless. And consequently, we have across the whole horizon of, quote, Christianity or church world, we have some empty religion. Some powerless religion, some people that ascribe to some certain things or, or places or whatever, but there's no power. There's no real life. There's no real joy. There's, there's just obligation. There's just ritual. There's things that go along with that. And it, and it's because they don't really hold to the fact that this is true and it's inspired and it becomes authority for our life. And authority would be a a big word that, that we need to realize here tonight. If the doctrine of inerrancy is not embraced, and you have to have some authority in your life, okay? The, the problem with the cultural and social shifts that we see now largely have to do because people have a doctrine of relativism. And I'll tell you where that comes from is because there's no other authority and then they don't want an authority. Because if you don't have an authority, then you can do what you want to do. And, and that's just kind of wired in the way that our flesh is. But see, if you don't embrace a doctrine of inerrancy, then here's, here's what becomes your authority. Reason. Reason becomes authority. Reason is logic. Reason is power of the mind. Did you know that someone could have a mind more powerful than yours? Y'all did know that, right? And so you have somebody, you're reasoning something, you're using logic and someone comes along and, and now, and that's your authority for life. They can talk you into totally something else. And so now reason not only becomes authority, reason also then judges scripture. And that's where a life can really get into some, some real trouble because this is, this is the book of life. And that's where relativism really, really comes to us. So, if there are errors and mistakes and falsehoods in Scripture anywhere, then how can I trust the rest of it? Let's, um, let's say that a guy, let's say there's a court case going on and somebody's called to testify. And let's say that part of his testimony, he is mistaken. Let's say he's an expert witness on something, but he's got his facts wrong. Well, then what are they going to think about any other facts that he brings up? That's going to draw them into question. Okay. And you call another witness and they lie to you about something. And that gets discovered that they've perjured themselves. And now what other testimony that they would give, that's going to be drawn into question. Are y'all here? Let's say that a company makes a product. And the product is faulty. That's why companies sometimes have to do damage control because they may have a good name and then they come out with just a sorry product. And, uh, well, well, here's, here's something. I like, I like yogurt with fruit on the bottom. 
And I don't leave it there. Stir it up and get it up top. Actually, I love Greek yogurt with blueberries. And then I always will buy fresh blueberries. And I'll get a handful of them things. I got fruit on the bottom. I got fruit on the top. And then we mix and then we introduce them. And that's just good stuff. And it's good for you. And um, just about every morning in the world, I'll, I'll eat that. And a while back, my brand of yogurt was all over the news because they had, I don't know, botulism or something in their, in their yogurt. And I thought, are you kidding me? Okay, so I saw that all over the news. They started their PR campaign and everything. Next time I'm in the store buying, buying my yogurt, I'm looking at some other brands. And I thought, nah, you know, they're smart enough. They're big enough. They're going to work this thing out. So I bought some, but I got to tell you, and it's months later, every time now, pick it up. I'm checking the date. I'm making sure the, the lid that you pull off is not like, you know, jiffy pop. And when I peel it off, I'm not just looking, I'm smelling. Are you with me? Why? Why? Because something shook me a little bit concerning their integrity. So if, if somebody's going to hold to the fact that there's errors and mistakes and falsehoods in here, then it's going to draw other things into question. That's why the secular world would love, loves to attack creation, loves to attack, come on, Noah and an ark. A virgin had a baby. And see, if they can draw all these things into question then I don't have to obey what it says to do. And I don't have to believe that or that. And you know what? Now I am free from this. And I'm going to tell you something. When you really know what this is, you don't want to be free. From this. Oh. oh, We've got to love the word more than our necessary food. It's our comfort, it's our joy, it's our light, it's our shield, it's our sword, it's a hammer, it's a, it's a balm, it's an oil, it's milk, it's meat, it's water, it's, it's everything that we need. And so the devil works overtime to get, get people to attack the inerrancy of God's word. And here's what's at stake, the very nature, character, and integrity of God himself. And if he's not reliable, or let me put it this way, if his word's not reliable, then he's not reliable. Just like that witness in court. If his word's not reliable, he's not reliable. And look at me for this one. And if his word's not reliable, and if he's not reliable, we're sunk. We are sunk. So it's not just a matter of, okay, I'll believe it then. I'll believe it. Let me do a little bit of work. And there's a, I, we literally could spend months on this, but let's do a little bit of work tonight and take it just beyond. Okay. I'll believe it. I, I don't want you to just do that. I want you to also see some of the things that would take away the arguments of errancy about scripture. So we'll, we'll look at this a little bit. First of all, inerrancy allows for a few things. It allows, first of all, for a variety in style. One of the criticisms that some people would raise and they say, well, it can't, it can't be, um, inerrant without, without error, uh, and only true because different people worked on it. 
Well, you need to know that God created those people, knew those people, superintended those people, and, and moved upon those people to write. At some point, you have to believe that God is able to do some things that I can't, I can't fully figure out. Okay? Now, he, uh, inerrancy allows for some variety in style. Let's, let's just think a little bit. Um, John, who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, a beloved disciple of Jesus, John was a fisherman, and he was essentially un, uneducated. Okay, then you have Luke. Luke uh, wrote a book called Luke, and, and also Acts. And Luke was a physician, and he was very educated. Then you have Paul, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul was a philosopher. And super educated. So you got three guys and their books run into each other right there. And you're going to have three different styles. God did not void people of their personality, of their background. He used them and he spoke through them and he inspired them to bring the word of God together. And God brought that about. So you have to allow for variety in style. And just because one would speak in a certain way and another would speak in another way, that is not errancy. Uh, that is just variety in style. Another thing is variety in details. Variety in details. And this is probably where Scripture gets most, most attacked. But let's look at this just for a moment. We have what are called the synoptic gospels, okay? So that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic means that they cover essentially the same kind of things. So pretty much the same events. Same happenings and almost the same order are going to happen. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John has some of the same things. We'll look at one of those in just a moment. And so you've got four different accounts. uh, And in a lot of cases, just three different accounts of the same event. I defy you to find anywhere. I mean, if you're standing downtown on the corner... And there's a wreck that takes place. And the highway patrol comes and investigates. You're going to get variations of the story. And if it was hit and run, you might get, it was, it was a red van. And then, no, it was, a, it was a green Hummer. You know, you, you might get that just depending on all kinds of things that happen because you have different people. And you say, well, we're trying to avoid error and mistakes here. But, but go this way. Um, let's say that you have four reporters and something happened and they would say, let's say an ice storm, like Atlanta and Southeast. Aren't you glad we're in Florida y'all? Okay. Um, let's say that something happened with the ice and, and 8,000 people, roughly their power goes out. So one guy is, is on the news and he's saying 8,000 people have lost their power. Well, with another network, maybe somebody says 7,093 people lost their power. And then you've got another network and a guy will say 8,111 people lost their power. And then you've got another network and the guy says almost 10,000 people lost their power. You're not really going to say that's error. You're not really going to say, you know, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong. There's, There's some room for the variety of, of the details. Let's say that four guys worked at the same office place 
and they all were roommates in, a, in an apartment. And somebody asked them, well, how long does it take you to get to work? How far are you away from work? And one guy would say, oh, we live not far from the office. Okay, then another guy would say, it's about a mile. Another guy, you would ask him, how, how far do you live from work? A mile. And another guy would say, it's 1.2 miles. Well, guess what? It's all, are you, are you all with me? It's true. There's differences, but there's not discrepancy. Are y'all hearing me? And that, that's an area that sometimes, well, he said it this way and he said it this way. And he mentioned that and he didn't mention that. And so then they, they come with that there are contradictions and they're not contradictions. Let me also, and I don't have time to go into it all tonight, but science and archaeology have never disproved anything about scripture. Science and archaeology, and there's so much work being done out there, never have disproved one thing about Scripture. Matter of fact, there are a lot of things that they go, well, we're just not going to publicize that right now because of what it does prove about so many things. I want to read to you just a little bit here, um, an excerpt from a paper I wrote for school a couple years ago, just a little bit here on inerrancy. It says, as for the miracle of multiplication of food, it's compared in from four of the Gospels. While there are several minor differences in some of the details, it is obvious that all four writers are discussing the same incredible event. This remarkable miracle made a great impact, no doubt, on the people who were fed that day. As it is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. But consider that the crowd was probably not aware of all the details, nor did they see what the disciples were privy to. Imagine the thoughts and emotions experienced by the disciples as they gathered up the leftovers that were filled up 12 baskets full. I want want to make a, a note of that, okay? What if you were there and you saw this boy's lunch multiplied to feed 5,000 men plus the women and children, and then the Lord told you, now I want you to go gather up the the fragments of that. You're living in a miracle. How many of you know there's a little bit of buzz that would be going on with that? And it says, it is interesting to consider that four of these disciples who were up close, firsthand eyewitnesses were the ones to record this miracle in the gospel. In these four different accounts, there are many similarities and only minor differences. This is not troublesome when you consider that they were in fact four different human individuals and they wrote the gospels some 30 to 40 years later. In order to recount and write what they did, it would involve their memory, which although time had passed, they'd obviously been affected deeply by this event. Further, the main reason they wrote in the first place is because the Holy Spirit moved on them and inspired them to do so. Now, don't you think if the Holy Spirit moved on you and inspired you what to write, it's also going to be inerrant. To me, it is more remarkable and notable that there are so many similarities between their accounts. They all agree that the crowd numbered 5,000 men, and both Mark and Luke mentioned that the people were divided into groups. They all agree that the miracle began with five loaves and two fish, that they all sat down to eat, and 12 baskets were filled with the fragments, and they all ate and were satisfied. Only John notes that the food belonged to a little lad and that the loaves were barley, while Mark gives details such as the grass was green. John also points out that Jesus was testing the disciples while already knowing that he intended to perform this miracle. It is important to note the differences are minor and are in fact differences and could never be considered discrepancies. 
In my thinking, inerrancy, infallibility are virtually interchangeable. Both terms point to the authority and trustworthiness of the Bible being without error. Whether being free from error concerning details and descriptions, inerrancy, or being free from error in matters of faith and practice, infallibility, which we'll talk about, Scripture is truthful and with no falsehoods, deliberate or unintentional. Get this last thing. Because God cannot lie... And the Bible emanates from his character. His word is inerrant. Now, um, and let's, let's just harp on that just for a moment. And then I'm going to wrap this up tonight. Inerrancy, ultimately, we believe in that because of the character of God. You know, I've known Pastor John Musselman now for 25 years. And if somebody told me something that, that they said, he told me this, can I count on that? I would say Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I know his character. When my kids were little, they would come and watch my kids if we went on a trip. I trusted them with my kids. And that all worked out good. We've got some funny stories, but that's, enough. that's, for, that's for another day. And then being on staff with us and being a part of what we're doing in all these years. And it's like I know that person. And see what we're talking about because of the character of God, because ultimately that's what it's about. Then I'm, I trust his word as well. And it goes back and forth. God cannot lie. God cannot speak falsely. And let me just give you a couple of scriptures here. Um, Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. Again, that word is flawless. He is a shield to those who trust in him. Titus 1, 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, everybody say cannot lie, cannot. promised from time, be, from time begin, before time begin. Listen, there's some things people say, there's nothing God cannot do. Let me tell you something God cannot do. God cannot lie. Amen. God cannot lie. Now, the original manuscripts, and I need to talk about this just, just briefly here. The original manuscripts, which are also called the autographs, they were originally what was inspired and inerrant by God. The original manuscripts. I don't have time tonight, but there's incredible numbers that there are books that are readily uh, accepted as true because the amount of autographs or uh, copies, early copies that still exist. And uh, even like the works of Homer. And you could go to any university and they say, do you believe that this is an accurate copy? Yes, because of this, 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 and we have it today. Did you know that uh, historical scriptural copies, copies of scripture, outnumber that by 25,000 to one? And then in recent years, we had the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls. That's a whole nother story that we'll, we'll look at some things a little bit later to help to prove this. The... Original manuscripts then were meticulously and accurately copied. And then we, we have this in its original language, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. And now it comes to us in English. So the question would be, well, if the originals were inerrant, can I trust what I have now? And if you go through proper uh, scholarly disciplines and the principles of interpretation... And there's ways to do that going back to the originals. We're in better shape to do that now than ever before. Uh, technology helps and then historic and archaeological uh, finds help us in our day to see what the originals were. And then out of those languages, there's scholarly 
disciplines, principles of interpretation that can bring scripture all the way to us. So if you have, and that's what we use, unless I I will always tell you if we're doing a paraphrase. If I mention uh, the message, I'll always say it's paraphrase. But typically we're going to use like new King James version, new international version, new living translation, uh, ASV, ESV. There's a number of those that are scholarly. They've been brought to us with principles that just absolutely work and bring us from the originals to here. Beyond that, I believe that the hand of God, there's been a divine delivery to help bring what he originally inspired and provided for us in Aaron that is going to make its way to us. And I want you to know that if, that if you follow that all the way through, you can rest assured that the Bible that you hold in your hand tonight is inerrant and inspired by God. You can trust it. You can trust it. There's so much we could say on this. Essentially, I want to bring it down just to this. It's a matter of authority in our life. It's a matter of the character of God. It's a matter of this. Everything else is built on this. And if we, if we don't step across the line and believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible is without error, is without mistake, it's without falsehood, intentional or unintentional, I accept God's word is true. If you don't do that, then here's what our culture loves to do. Mankind's love to do it the whole time. Then they want to pick and choose. Everybody say pick and choose. And when you pick and choose, you can't do that. And people love to have a loose view of what the Bible teaches. You can't do that. Because then that creates uh, error in people's life. It brings people to destruction. And so if we have loose views... Because we want to pick and choose what is true and what is not true and what I'll take as authority and what I won't. You can't do that. That's like taking a basket, a woven basket, and then you're going to pull out one strand and say, this one's no good. And I don't want that one in there as well. You know what you do? You damage and you weaken the whole basket. And so you can't pick and choose like that because then all the issues of our day, adultery, homosexuality, tithing, honesty, Anything that you would want to talk about that is found in Scripture, you, you can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose because I'll tell you what, it'll lead to a life of error. And ultimately, that'll lead to a life of destruction. So, it is a doctrine. Everybody say doctrine. It means something that you choose to believe. But I'm going to tell you what, it is backed up. I, I wish I had hours to take time on this. And we'll continue to develop this. But we accept God's Word as verbal and plenary, inspired of God, inerrant, in that there's no mistake, there's there's no error. God is faithful and true. Do you all hear me, church? God is faithful and true. God and his word are one, and you can trust God, and therefore you can trust his word. Amen? Did you all get anything at all out of this tonight?